0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant.
1: This is Rough Translation from NPR. In our new season, Homefront, about the civilian-military divide. One way that people cross that divide? Romance.
2: I just- Seven targets on her. And she was the mission. It
0: was a mission? <laughs> what was
2: your mission essentials task list? Uh, win her over somehow.
0: Dun, dun, yeah. dun, 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 dun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Matt Lammers had been out of active duty for two years when he rolled into a Bed Bath & Beyond in Tucson, Arizona.
0: You show up on my store, a Bed Bath & Beyond, very late at night. <laughs>
1: Alicia Argelia was a store manager.
0: And you know, when you want to close the store, you don't want customers around, so you go and help them. So, like, yeah, what can I do for you? So yeah, oh my God.
1: <laughs> Alicia sees Matt, this big Asian guy with lots of tattoos who uses a wheelchair. He's got a 10th Mountain Division patch with the two cross swords, a huge smile, and a long shopping list. He wants sheets. Bath towels, maybe placemats. Alicia doesn't even remember everything that was on it. Just that she helped him aisle by aisle.
0: The ex-wife took half of the stuff. And so he was shopping for extra sheets and the things that he needed for his apartment. So we became very good friends first. And then he sent me flowers.
1: He sends flowers to the store.
0: To the store. And he called the same night and asked me if I received the flowers. And I say, yes, thank you. They're beautiful and all that. (laughs) I wasn't too interested in having a relationship, but I wanted to be his friend.
2: I tried to use some of my best lines on Alicia. I told her I'd, I'd die for her.
0: She say I'll die for you. It's like, you're a soldier. You'll die for anyone. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I was like, dang, I gotta come
1: back stronger than that. And the way he comes back stronger is to show her a photograph.
0: I think on the third visit to Bed Bath & Beyond, you showed me the um, operating table picture.
1: The picture he shows her. It's a stark and stripped-down military operating room in Baghdad. Doctors are huddled around him, sewing up where his left arm and both legs used to be. There's blood and gauze all over the floor. This photo, it marks Matt as part of a very small club, maybe five dozen veterans in the past 20 years of war who've lost three or four limbs on the
2: battlefield and lived.
0: Yeah. And you say usually people cry when they yeah, see that Yeah, that was my go-to
2: move. That's like normally you'd come back but to the house and have a them. medical field background.
0: <laughs> it didn't impress me or yeah. I didn't feel like crying or like, oh my God, blood. I was just, oh, wow, you know, <laughs> you went through a lot.
2: She's good. She knew what she was doing. That was my go-to move with, with white girls. Then the next thing i let's go back to the house. <laughs> but no, she made me work for it.
1: <laughs> this is Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. It's our new season, Homefront. A few years ago, our correspondent, Quill Lawrence, set off to do a story about how veterans come home. And we should say that most combat veterans, even those with PTSD, adjust pretty well to life back in the States. But others do struggle. And Quill wondered, what happens to them? How do they find fulfillment? What do they need from loved ones? And this led Quill to an extraordinary story about an extraordinary return, which led us to a different question. What it takes to be a loved one of a veteran trying to come home. Someone who falls in love with a guy, but then becomes his chief caregiver and battle buddy. This story does contain graphic and vivid accounts of war and battlefield medicine. Matt and Alicia have been through a lot and they talk about it candidly. So please make sure you're in the right headspace to hear it. Rough Translations Homefront, back after this break.
3: Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana, on a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started.
1: We're back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. NPR has a veteran's beat. In fact, we're the only national news network with a vet's beat which I hadn't actually thought about till I was talking with Quill Lawrence, our veterans correspondent,
3: it can be a lot of pressure to choose which vets to profile. I'll just say that there are some times when I've been talking with the VA, and they pretty much come out and say, are you sure you want to do a story about this veteran? And what's implied there is kind of like, do you want to make this your poster boy for an NPR story? Basically, because you're going to look pretty bad When he's the hero of your story, and, I mean, the facts about what he's done come out, are you really sure that this is the guy you want to feature? But Quill wanted to tell a story about someone who was having
1: a hard time coming home, who was, as he would be the first to admit, hard to love, and who was testing the system in so many ways, which led Quill to Matt Lammers.
2: Having been given so many curveballs, I just learned how to roll with the punches and
3: List your curveballs for me.
2: Uh, <clears throat> well, being orphaned, found on a police station doorstep in Seoul, South Korea. Uh, being adopted at 10 months old, growing up in the Midwest, experiencing a lot of racism and prejudice and other things. Uh, I guess I could say I gave myself a bunch of curveballs as well, making bad choices in high school with drugs and trying to self-medicate
3: Matt was arrested in high school for drug possession. But then after 9-11, he enlisted in the army. They gave him a drug waiver. Usually you can't join with a criminal charge. And in the army, he flourished.
2: It was good. I'm glad they accepted me. That was a little bit of a hurdle, but it was good to clear that.
3: The first time he deployed to Iraq, he got a Purple Heart. In September of 2004, his truck rolled straight into a roadside bomb.
2: We all lived through that one. Some minor hearing loss, five days off the line, finished out my deployment.
3: He went home for a while, then redeployed in 2007 as a sergeant. And one day in June, he was on a road in Baghdad.
2: We had just come off of Route Irish.
3: Yep, Irish Indian.
2: And then we turned southbound.
3: Anyone who's been to Iraq has been stuck on this road.
2: I just checked the time. I'm right-handed. Before all this happened, I was right-handed. My dad had given me just a, a nice watch for me being enlisted, and uh, I just checked the time. I had one last Newport and my cigarettes in the ACU pouch near the boots.
3: And he said that he was gonna reach into his, his leg pocket and grab the cigarette, but he thinks, you know what, maybe I'll save that cigarette for when I get back to the base.
2: And I thank God that I decided not to have that cigarette. That's when I remember all the traffic, civilian traffic next to us screeched to a halt. Everyone in front of us sped up. Yeah. And I just thought, oh shit. And then just boom. As soon as it happened, the wind got knocked out of me. And I, my brain recognized the smell right away. And I was just thinking.
3: You good talking about all this?
2: Yes, yes. Cool. It's <laughs> done. Yeah. It was one of those days I knew it was going to worse before it got better.
3: Matt says stuff like this all the time. He might say, not to sound too dramatic, even when things couldn't humanly be more dramatic. Or, it was going to get worse before it got better, which means it's going to get really bad. I remember I picked up my hand. This left hand is pretty much detached at this point.
2: Initially, it didn't occur to me, it was my hand, and so I set the hand down, thinking, "Okay, it's one of my soldiers, hopefully we can save it. And I tried to stand up about three times, and it occurred to me I couldn't stand. And I looked down and that's when I saw everything was just ripped open and my femoral arteries were just spurt, 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 spurt. and uh, I remember thinking, okay, crap, like it's go time. And it just, everything kind of slowed down. I just remember seeing my arm, everything was just trembling from shock. It was probably 125 degrees June 10th in Baghdad. I was freezing cold, and I knew what that meant.
3: He's in shock, but also in extreme pain from the parts of his body he can feel.
2: I was just screaming for help, not for myself, but for my guys. I thought they were all gone. And they, nobody would tell me, give me a situation of my guys, which made me think the worst. You know, like, oh, don't worry about them, don't worry about them. I'm like, it's my job to worry about them. I remember there was a private sitting on my chest... <laughs> He was like, I know you're a sergeant, and I'm just a private, but if you fall asleep, I'm going to punch you. And I'm like, that's cool. You know, like, bring it on. And I just kept making eye contact with him and thanking him. And I remember there was another, he must have been a new boot in ground, he looked like he was about to puke. And I kept apologizing to him, because I kept getting blood all over his new boots. I'm like, I'm sorry I'm messing up your boots, brother. They couldn't believe I was still conscious.
3: He, um... At some point, he realizes this is a lot more painful than it should be, and he's actually, the medic has, has gotten one of his testicles stuck in the tourniquet on his right leg.
2: And I kept screaming, it hurts, it hurts. He's like, it's supposed to hurt. I'm like, no, like, it, this is a different kind of pain. <laughs>
3: when did they figure that out?
2: When I got to the hospital. Later on, I found out uh, that he committed suicide. The medic did? He was a good man.
3: Matt is often asking himself why he survived and others didn't.
2: I found out that one of the flight medics that helped me, he ended up killing himself too. I was like, are you serious? Why Why are all these people, I just wish I would give them a hug and thank them. Like, I'm still here, life goes on. It's,
3: I think those medics see so much, you know. They boy. have to see the
2: carnage. And, yeah. Yeah.
3: They managed to get Matt to a hospital in Baghdad.
2: I got to the hospital finally and my eyes were closed.
3: He overhears someone saying
2: the major who was in charge of the medical team at the time said, okay team, we have to be on our A game today. Sergeant Lambers doesn't have much longer to live. Oh, my eyes real quick. Excuse me, sir, you're talking about me? He's like, holy crap, you're still... And I was like, yes sir, and I'd like to hopefully stay alive, that'll be okay, and And they're like, Sergeant Lambers, can you wiggle your toes? (laughs) I chuckled, and I said, with all due respect, sir, if I could wiggle my toes, we wouldn't be in this predicament.
3: He's in the trauma bay. He's in and out of consciousness. And this next part might be especially rough to hear.
2: I looked over, and I was on the pre-op table at the time. They were flushing IVs, and I think I had to get, like, 10 or 15 units of blood immediately. They had people lined up. They didn't even have time to test the blood. They ran out and there's people just lined up at the door just donating blood to save me. They realize that
3: he doesn't have enough volume of blood left in his body to take a hit of morphine. And they just say, you know what, son, we're gonna have to do this to you while you're awake. said,
2: so unfortunately you've lost so much blood, we can't give you any pain meds. And I said I knew it's gonna be a day that's gonna get worse before it gets better, so just do what you gotta do, sir.
3: What Matt says they did next may sound extreme. I checked with three combat doctors who all said that Matt's account is plausible. He was in extremis, near death. They had to act fast to save him.
2: There was a specialist, a female medic, and she offered to let me hold her hand. I respectfully declined because I said, uh, ma'am, I don't, I'm not sure how bad this is gonna hurt. I've never been potato while I was awake, so I don't want to break your hand or anything if it gets that bad. And so they just shoved a blue hospital rag in my mouth, basically, and told me to bite down. I can still remember the bone saw, the high-pitched kind of squealing noise. They start with my left leg, and that one hurt. And then they cut through the right one. He
3: starts feeling this terrible pressure in his chest. And he he can't breathe, and they hadn't realized this because they're working on his severed limbs at the moment, but his lungs had started to collapse, and he taps them to get their attention, and then they notice, and they jab a needle in through his upper right chest in order to reinflate his lungs, and then he can breathe again.
2: My body was just trying to protect everything vital, I guess
3: He goes through all of this whole surgery, and at the end of it, you know he he was a pretty big guy, and he now has lost three of his four limbs, and he's um, asking his soldiers in the room there, can I, can I go to sleep now?
2: Like, I must have asked them probably 20 or three times, are you sure it's safe for me to fall asleep? Are you sure it's safe? I was so scared of falling asleep at that time.
3: He was taught to keep other wounded people awake. You don't want to go to sleep. You want to stay awake and motivated, and you don't want to let go. So he's, he's asking one of his uh, soldiers, can I go to sleep now? And they're saying, yeah, you can go,
2: yeah. Yes, you can sleep now, it's fine. I do not those assholes were basically telling me to let go. <laughs>
3: they were saying, like, rest easy, soldier, you know, move on to the next life.
2: Yeah. And so I thought, okay, it's finally, I can get some rest now. It's been kind of a stressful day. To say and, the least.
3: So Matt has survived the injury, but... Injuries like this they're never really over. So can you you sort of take it one day at a time now? Or?
2: Yes. Yes. Amen to that. One day at a time. Cuz my pain level right now sometimes it's minutes at a time just to get through, not to sound too dramatic or anything.
3: So there's a couple of different kinds of pain he's dealing with. When you amputate a limb, sometimes the bones they well they keep trying to grow back and they don't always grow in the best direction and you have to go back and get surgery after surgery get them shaved down he's also got all of this phantom pain from these three limbs and sometimes he tells me his feet feel like they're being burned with hot irons or stabbed with knives
2: yeah, I can usually kind of shift like if this pain gets real bad then I can focus on the pain in my legs and I'm hoping that overpowers this one and I, I try and mentally override Yeah. It's the least amount of pain, even though it's still pain.
3: When he came home from Iraq, Matt was sent to Brook Army Medical
2: Center in Texas. And they said, we didn't know what to do for you.
3: He felt like they were improvising how to help a triple amputee get back to a normal life.
2: Clipping my own nails. That sounds silly, but I tried to learn when I was at the hospital. They set up a, they glued a nail clipper to uh, like a piece of wood, basically, and told me to use my residual limb. And. I just kept slicing off my cuticles like all the way down. And so man. I'd go out and just get a uh,
3: manicure. Yes, really? a manicure.
2: Man. They still charge me like full price for both hands. And I was like, what the heck? Like, you want, you're doing half the work. <laughs> I'm not asking for a protective coat or anything like that. I just wanted my nails clipped.
3: He asked his doctors and physical therapists, what should I do if I fall out of my wheelchair? How should I get back in? He says they told him to wait until someone comes who can pick you up.
2: No, that's unacceptable. So I spent, it was painful. I'd get back from physical therapy and I'd stay up at night, falling and kept trying to crawl in my chair, lose my grip. I'd fall again. Um, Just trial and error.
3: He fell so many times, he ripped open the stitches on the stump of his left arm.
2: I was too embarrassed to go to the hospital. So I just, I put it underneath my chest and I slept on it without the bleeding. And, yeah, it was, it was interesting.
3: Wow, man. You're a piece of work. <laughs> you, you just let your arm open up and.
2: You, yeah, it was, the stream was slowing, so I'm good. It's not life threatening. We're good.
3: It took a lot of trial and error and some more blood, but after a month, he figured out a system to get in and out of his chair.
2: Position the chair at different places to see which would be best. And I found that since my left residual limb is longer than my right leg, I always try to leave my left one. Um, it's only about an inch and a half longer, but as long as I get an inch of contact on my bone and I have a handle or some way to pull, I can pretty much transfer anything within reason.
3: Matt took a medical retirement from the Army. After his first marriage ended, he moved in with his parents, who he had a rocky relationship with.
2: My mom was pretty snarky at the time at my retirement party. His mom made a joke that Matt didn't appreciate. She was like, oh, it must be nice to be 25 and retire. I felt like a failure and moving back in with mommy and dad and relying on them. Two months was about all I could take.
3: For those two months, Matt teaches himself everything he'll need to live on his own. Like how to crack an egg with one hand. He taught himself how to get into bed and get into a car. He learned to drive again. The VA outfitted his truck so he could steer it with a prosthetic arm. And finally, he was able to move out of his parents' house and rent his own apartment in Tucson, which is how he ended up late one night at a Bed Bath & Beyond with a giant shopping list.
0: you got to go above and beyond. It's Bed Bath & Beyond. This is a Beyond beyond part. And part of the policy is you can't say no to a customer.
3: (laughs) Alicia never expected to be working in retail. In Mexico, she'd been trained as an aviation mechanic. She loved fixing stuff and diagnosing problems. When she immigrated to the U.S., she worked for a while as a certified nursing assistant. Then when she met Matt, she thought maybe the military life was for her. She even submitted an application to join the Air Force.
0: I was so impressed with his determination. He was very positive. When we talked, we had deep conversations you know, no, just superficial things about what you truly want. What would you like to do?
3: They would talk for hours on the phone.
0: Like he told me, I would love to start walking, but they told me it was going to be hard and things like that. So we got very deep conversations, right? Uh-huh. So that was different. And I liked that.
3: Alicia was fresh from her own divorce. She and her ex shared custody of their three kids, though the kids mostly live with her ex. And Matt could relate. He'd missed a lot of his children growing up when he was deployed to Iraq. Well, what brings you here to Sesame Street? This is an episode of Sesame Street about injured vets coming home. He doesn't have no legs and one arm. And they invited Matt and his daughters.
2: I didn't think she wanted to hug me because she was scared of me, maybe. That hug made me feel so happy and complete inside that it made me feel like I didn't really lose anything at all.
3: Matt had a way of connecting with people and translating his experience. Veterans groups would fly him out to give speeches. Matt was funny and kind and always doing things for Alicia.
0: You cook for me. Yeah. He invited me for breakfast. And when I got to his apartment, he made so much food. Like, I don't know how many cases of bacon and <laughs> a dozen eggs. It was so much food. It was like, oh, that was crazy. With Bacon, eggs, do you remember what
3: else? Um, I'm here with Rough Translation producer Jess Jang.
0: Yeah, French toast, Uh, you got orange juice, coffee, tea. We had like a buffet. So that makes you feel like you're a very special person, you know? It's just serious. Uh, It's not a game and I like that too. You know, my mom realized I was in love with him before I even did.
3: At some point, was talking to her mom.
0: I used to call my mom three times a week just to see how she's doing. And divorce is rough, so I complain a little bit about my ex-husband, and I start talking to my mom about Matt. Oh, I met this person, and his name is Matt, and this and that. And then every single time I talked to my mom, it was about Matt. And one day, my mom was like, titi because that's my nickname <laughs> titi you're in love I say you really love your friend and any it click it was what like what she say she
3: says "Estás enamorada mi hija yeah. she Estas,
0: say? estás perdida estás yeah. enamorada you're lost
3: you've you've fallen for this guy
0: you're lost yeah, yeah. you're yeah. lost for this man
3: Tell me about that decision to enter into a relationship.
0: I thought it won't be easy physically. You see Matt and the only thing I thought is the physical part, right? So I thought it will be, it's not going to be easy, but I can do it. I can do it.
3: Pretty soon after Alicia met him, Matt moved to Houston, Texas. A nonprofit had offered him a house there. But even though he was now a 1,000 miles away, he kept seeing Alicia. He'd drive the 15 hours back to Tucson just to see her. And then Matt got hit by another one of those curveballs. He's driving down the road, and he gets sideswiped by a teenage driver. And his truck is totaled, and his wheelchair is totaled.
2: Luckily, I had just gone to the grocery store, so I did have a pantry full of food, this, like, ramen and stuff. and So from what I could reach or reach with a grabber if anything on the shelf. I'd knock down to eat chips.
3: And how are you cooking the even the ramen and stuff?
2: I eat dry or I just eat chips. I just I basically just snack. and I had MRE's luckily. <laughs> I had a lot of MREs taped up.
3: MRE's are meals ready to eat. It's a whole dinner in a box. It's for troops to eat in the field. Matt had bought a bunch of them at an army surplus store.
2: So I do remember eating those, cooking those in the living room.
3: Cooking them in the little chemical packet?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> the house that Charity built for him, it wasn't fully handicapped accessible. And now his primary means of mobility, his wheelchair, was broken.
2: Just to get around, I just scooted around on my behind. And that was the only thing I had at that time.
0: So he calls me and said, "Uh, I'm sorry, I can't go and visit you. Uh, My car got totaled, the pickup truck, and I don't even have a wheelchair right now. Broken in half. So I'm peeing in in puppy training training pads because he couldn't even go up in the toilet.
2: I knew I needed help when I called her after the truck accident. And I was by myself crawling around the floor. So I need to help physically, but also, like, there's a lot of other stuff I knew I was going through. Alicia comes to visit
3: him in Houston, and she's kind of shocked about what she finds. Here's this guy who was cooking her breakfast, and now he's dragging himself around his house and eating dry noodles. And for a guy who seems so independent... He's not taking action, not calling the Department of Veterans Affairs to get a new wheelchair or to get his truck adapted for his
2: prostheses. No, at the time, I wasn't making my appointments. I had probably two doors full of just mail. <laughs> it overwhelmed me. So I just didn't look at it. I'd be, well, it's out of my sight. But it's out of my mind.
3: Ever since Matt got his first Purple Heart, when he was in that first explosion, he'd struggled with keeping appointments, staying organized, or remembering phone numbers. So doing all that VA paperwork just seemed impossible.
2: They said I needed to apply for all this stuff. Uh, I needed to do all these papers and forms. So they, they won. I, I told them on the phone, I'm like, okay, you win. You know, that's going to overwhelm me. And that's like, Okay, I'll go without help.
3: Matt's not alone. One disabled vet told me he got diagnosed with PTSD and the stated cause was VA paperwork. So Alicia spends the weekend in Houston helping Matt sort through all the piled-up letters, the unanswered emails. She talks to the different offices at the VA, and then she goes back to Tucson.
0: So when I went there, I went there for like a weekend. So I didn't stay there for too long because I couldn't.
3: She had to get back to her job. A couple months before this, Matt had proposed. But she wasn't ready to drop everything and move in with him. Now he asked her again.
0: So I was like, "Okay, what am I going to do? So I put my two weeks notice. I gave away half of my belongings I packed my little car. And I moved to, to Texas to help him out.
3: It also meant that plan she had to join the Air Force, she put that aside.
1: Alicia withdrew her application to join the military. But she was about to get a military education.
0: And then he started to train me.
1: Homefront from Rough Translation, back after this break. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket.
0: Download the NPR app today.
1: Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing. But it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR.
3: This is Homefront from Rough Translation. I'm Quill Lawrence. Once in Houston, Alicia gets a full-time job at the Bed Bath and Beyond there. And when she's not at work, she's doing a lot to help Matt out. So what what does Alicia help you do?
2: Um she helps me shower. Clipping my nails—that's a huge one. I, I, we don't like saying the word "can't" in our family. Um, however, that's something that I really can't do with one arm. She helps me transfer my wheelchair, and she helps me open water bottles. Uh, I used to do it with my teeth, and so many of my teeth have fallen out from ripping open bottles and cans. That now it's kind of hard for me to do that without taking a shower. <laughs> She's prepping water bottles—just things that people don't even really think about.
0: Opening oh, a and banana, like she I just did. Just, just
2: open my banana for me. I mean, it's. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> and I did patient care for so many years. And to me, it's something very natural. Um, like if we go to a place and eat, I never ask him if you need help. I just reach over and start cutting up his steak. You know, because it's just what I do. It's me. Um,
2: I'd honestly say, not to be smart, the questions more what what doesn't she do. Because she, she does so much. And it's not just the physical. She's there mentally helping me stay on track, reminding me of why we're still in the fight, why we still go on, why we never give up.
3: Alicia had to remind him a lot. One night, she wakes up to find him doing cocaine in the bathroom. She tells him he has to quit. And he does. He quits cold turkey. But then he tells her... He's been to all these parts of town where he bought drugs. He wants to help Houston clean up its crime.
0: He's buying a lot of firearms.
3: And he's driving around with a truck full of firearms.
0: We had, like, 20-some rifles in the truck, in the bed of the truck, and, like, five, six, seven, I don't know, yeah. handguns. And it. thousands of rounds. Thousands.
3: Matt already has dozens of guns. I mean, more guns than any one person could carry. Um but Matt is spending his disability check buying more guns.
0: Everything. Pension, disability, everything. So it was the eighth of the month and we didn't have a penny. And then he started to train me.
3: The way he was trained in the army.
0: So he started to wake me up in the middle of the night, show me how to shoot, reload magazines at 2-3 in the morning, thousands of magazines.
3: I've heard a few other wives of veterans tell me stories like this. Their husbands started acting like drill sergeants, forcing them to learn the sort of skills you mainly need in a combat zone.
0: At the beginning, this was fun because I'm learning something new. But then it was like, okay, it was something I had to do. Like when I learned how to clear a house,
3: Matt had Alicia search room by room to make sure nobody had snuck in while they were out.
0: We came to the house and something was moved kind of weird. Was, oh, maybe someone is in there. you got to clear the house.
3: Then Matt started taking Alicia around the city on patrols in body armor.
0: Now I have to drive around with a military vest with ceramic plates on, and I had to use a military helmet. It's heavy and hot, and it was super humid in Houston. Where people... Looking at oh, yeah. all the time, we got a lot of looks. <laughs> a lot of looks.
2: I had her wearing body armor because I would in my head. I had some friends who were on the sheriff's department, so in my head, I was volunteering with them. So that's why I had her in body armor because we were. I was. Yeah. I was putting my head. I was patrolling. Alicia would tell herself in these moments, "Okay,
3: this is strange, and uncomfortable, and scary, but I'm doing this for Matt." He needs me to support him. Then one day, they're out on one of these patrols. They've been driving around for hours, and Alicia asks him,
0: Can I please use the bathroom? He didn't want to stop. He told me, pee on a diaper, like we were in a Humvee. They're all males. They get a bottle, they pee on a bottle. They don't stop. So he's asking me to pee on a diaper, and I was like, no, I need to go to a bathroom. There's a Walmart right there. I can't just go there and pee. He said, all right, then.
3: He lets her out, and when she comes back...
0: He's gone. My phone is inside the car. My purse is inside the car. It's just me just sitting on a bench, crying, waiting. Oh, my God, he left me here. What am I going to do now? And then 10 minutes later, he shows up. I hope you learned your lesson.
3: For those 10 minutes, were you also thinking, okay, yes, what am I going to do now? But also, what am Why I doing? doing?
0: Yeah. You know, like, I didn't marry this man to go... To just be like that. I wanted stability. I like staying home, cooking breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm a mom. You know, I like caring for others. I like that. I'm not a party person. I'm not an explorer. You know, <laughs> I'm not that kind of person. So it was very hard for me to go to nowhere. And I asked Map, what are we doing? Like why? And Matt told me, I need to know you have my back. And I cried that day because, wow, he just needs to feel like I'm one of his brothers.
3: One of his battle buddies.
0: Like, I'm a good shot. Like, I know how to use all this equipment. I can put pieces together just in case something happened. he feels protected by me the same way I will feel protected by him. When he said that to you, why did you cry? I cried because I realized that something else was going on, and I didn't know what it was. But I knew that it was normal to him. That was his normal. And I knew it wasn't normal to anyone else in a non-military society.
3: She told someone at the VA about these patrols. She told them about the body armor, the spending, the truck full of guns. She says the VA told her, this is just PTSD. One time, Matt got angry in a traffic jam. He pointed a gun at another driver. That driver called the cops and a SWAT team came and pulled Matt and Alicia over.
0: The guy in charge of this SWAT team His son was in 10 Mountain division, and he saw the patch. And so uh, he pulls me up and said, "Um, what's going on here? What's up with all the farms? And I said, I don't know what's going on. And he just shook his head.
3: Alicia thought Matt would be arrested. Instead, she says the cop gave him a warning.
0: Don't do that again, Matt. (laughs) You're good to go. And then he talk about his son being in ten on division, coming back not being the same, and and it clicked. That's when I realized he's not the only one. There are older veterans doing the same things, and there's a lot of a lot of mats driving around Houston. That, okay, so.
3: there are all of these mats out there, and Alicia is wondering how many of those mats. Have an Alicia.
1: When the police let Matt off with a warning, or the VA told her this buying of firearms was just PTSD, Alicia was getting the message that this kind of behavior was to be expected from a veteran. But Alicia was not going to accept that. She wasn't built that way. She wasn't going to write him off. She remembered the Matt that she'd fallen in love with, the one who'd inspired her to want to join the Air Force, who made her feel cared for at a low moment in her own life, and she didn't want to let him down. And so she thought about this problem and proposed what seemed like a very simple solution. She convinced him to move back to Tucson, where there was less traffic, less stress. And when they did that, the training stopped. The armed patrols, the paranoia was gone. The old Matt was back, but the old Alicia was not. It was only much later that Alicia would look back at this chapter and notice how much she was changing, being conditioned in ways that she wouldn't see until it was too late. That's next time on Homefront. Today's episode was produced by Jess Jang. Our editor was Lou Olkowski. The Rough Translation team includes Matt Ozuk, Justine Yan, and Luis Treas. Many people, civilians and veterans, listened to early drafts of this piece. Thank you so much to Marian McCune, Robert Crawwich, Bruce Oster, Bob Little, Andrew Sussman, Liana Sinstrom, Jenny Lawton, Sana Krasikov, Laura Smitherman, DJ Skelton, Victor Iveas, Nora Cronin, Kristen Kramer, Dr. Andy Anson, Dr. Ian Black, Dr. David Calloway, Dr. Drew Helmer, and Lawrence Carter-Long. Thanks also to Woody Woodall, Steve, Danny, Luke, and Danny Prince for talking to us about Matt and Alicia. The Rough Translation Executive High Council includes Neil Carruth, Didi Skanky, and Anya Grunman. A special thanks to Chris Turpin and Vicky Walton-James. Nicole Beamsterbor is our senior supervising producer. Bryn Winterbottom did a bomb job backchecking this episode. Mastering by Isaac Rodriguez. Retired Army Captain Kimo Williams composed Homefront's theme song. Additional music from John Ellis, Jess Chang scored the episode. I'm Gregory Warner, back next week with more Homefront. From Rough Translation.
0: It's everything you need for radiant summer skin on the go, featuring travel sizes of Osea's clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral skincare, like their best-selling Undaria Algae Body Oil. Right now, you can get the best-seller's body care set, a $78 value, 33% off, and use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. Go to oseamalibu.com, code SUMMER.